0: everybody. Let's do another Deep Astronomy show, shall we? I'm Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space and I'm going to present to you today an audio of a hangout that I recorded but did not stream with Dr. Brian Keating. And I'm going to stream this eventually. I didn't do it when we were speaking because it didn't follow with the uh, normal streaming schedule that I put out. But it was an, um, it was a really fascinating discussion. Brian Keating is the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences at the University of California at San Diego. And he's written a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. And I wanted to share our discussion with you because it was really quite fascinating. And he was involved in the Bicep 2 mission which you may recall back in March of 2015 was all in the news because it was all about the this discovery of a polarized signal in the cosmic microwave background radiation that would ha- that if it had been embedded into the CMB as the BICEP2 team thought, then it would have been a support of the, it would have been observational evidence in support of the inflationary period of the cosmos. This is a time right after the Big Bang where the universe expanded exponentially. And it turned out that they were a little bit quick to publish, and they and they eventually had to retract their paper because the Follow-up observations by the European Space Agency's Planck Space Telescope, which also looked very accurately at the cosmic microwave background, found that the signal they were calling inherently part of the CMB, the polarized signal, these B-mode waves, which we'll talk about in the Hangout, were actually due to some to the dust and the gas inside our own galaxy, and were not part of the, uh, the cosmic microwave background. So the BICEP2 team had to start over, and it was a good example at the time of how science works. You know, a team makes an observation, they they produce results, and then those results are not verified by independent operations or observations elsewhere. But the experience left Brian and his team members a little bit shell-shocked, and they, everybody was talking prior to this paper going out, And after the immediate publication of the paper, it was on the cover of the New York Times, that they were gonna this was this was work that was gonna get them a Nobel Prize. That did obviously did not happen, but Brian Keating wrote about the experience in his book, the full title of which is losing the Nobel Prize a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor? And he and I speak about it, not only the the story of the Bicep2 mission, but then also things like the state of cosmology right now, how science is done, as well as some of the maybe not so great side benefits of having a Nobel Prize to begin with. So. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm going to be posting the audio here. There's not a whole lot of visuals you got to worry about, so this is just fine by just listening to the audio portion of it. I will be streaming this on my channel. As a recording, and I will be there in the chat box chatting with you guys, but that probably won't happen uh, for a while. So, um, just because I'm so busy, I don't have time right now. So, we'll get to that. But I wanted to post the audio portion because it's an interesting discussion. So, enjoy, folks, and thank you for listening. And uh, as I say on Space Junk Podcast, let's get started. <music> welcome, Brian, to our uh, humble little hangout here. Um, my guest today is Dr. Brian Keating. He's a Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences at the University of California at San Diego, and he's also the author of the book, Losing the Nobel Prize. So, Brian, first, I want to tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I'd like to ask you about how your book came to be published. So, tell us a little bit about yourself first.
1: Yeah, well, as you said, I'm an astronomer, astrophysicist, and professor at the University of California. I've been here about 16 years. I can hardly believe it. And, uh, you know, I never thought as a kid you could be a professor of astronomy or physics. You know, I thought it was like uh, being an ice cream taster or a wizard or something like that. That No one would pay you to do something I would do for free. But, you know, thankfully, my uh, governor and the regions continue to pay me. <clears throat> and um, what I get to do is really nothing less than work with the most intelligent human beings who have ever existed on all seven continents around the world, looking for invisible astronomical signals, invisible, that is, to the naked eye. And we're trying to make the, visible, the invisible visible using technology that dates back, in some cases, you know, 400 years back to when Galileo invented this little, or didn't invent, but used this humble little refracting telescope to observe the universe for the very first time.
0: Right. And so you work in a field uh, of cosmology where you're trying to understand the origins and the large scale structure of the universe itself, which is a huge and amazing science. And uh, when you say you're trying to, to look at this in other wavelengths, what wavelengths, what's your specific interest? I saw as I was uh, doing some research on you before talking that you were a part of, and I think you have something to say about the BICEP2 2, Bicep 2 mission yeah uh, which what, right. tell us tell us a little bit about the bicep 2 mission what it was designed to look at and also what are the wavelengths in which you're primarily interested in looking?
1: Yeah. at. yeah so what i study uh for those of you who uh, cannot see the video i study the cosmic microwave background oh, i
0: love that where did you get <laughs> that that <laughs> is, is a, awesome
1: this is a stuffed animal i my kids sometimes let me borrow uh you can get it from this uh this outfit called particle zoo
0: Oh, I know the about dot. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, so he's adamant. holding up, for those of you listening to the podcast, he's holding up a little stuffed animal, believe it or not, of the cosmic microwave background. Uh, That's right. The remnants of the Big Bang. It's awesome. Yeah, this is the heat <laughs> left
1: over from the formation of the very first elements, hydrogen, helium, uh, lithium, et cetera. <clears> right. And then after that, the elements that are made uh, that we find on Earth that we're made of really come from starlight and stars that have exploded in the past history of our universe, and I'll talk a little bit about that and how that actually impacts our study of the early universe, which we're trying to use, not visible light, like a normal telescope uses, or your eyeballs, which are really two refracting telescopes used, but instead we're using microwaves. This is a form of radiation, longer wavelength than infrared radiation, uh, shorter wavelength than radio waves, and these are waves that are thought to, or known to have emanated from the formation of the first elements, and the earliest structures in the universe when it was about 380,000 years old. What we're trying to do with that light is use the light as a type of film. Sounds weird for your uh, listeners out there, viewers who are old enough to remember film. Film used to be the substance that you'd expose. Let me see if I can find a picture. There's some pictures I have in in my office here that were taken by the great astronomer, Uh, Margaret Burbage, and um, she is one of the founders of optical astronomy, the pioneers of dark matter discovery, et cetera. Um, uh, I can go and grab a slide of hers that, that I happen to be blessed to have here at the University of California, San Diego. And what we're doing is we're using this light from the Big Bang as a type of film to expose waves of not light, but gravity. So waves of gravity, it's called gravitational radiation. Are produced when I you know, shake my fist at the television screen, when I see something I don't like. Anytime you have matter in motion, it produces waves of gravity. Anytime you have electric charges in motion, it produces waves of light. So in the early universe, it's possible that both were present in great quantities. Matter in motion, and, uh, and in fact, the reverberations of space-time itself may have been the plausible origin of a type of signal that we use our detectors located at the South Pole The one on the subject of my book is called uh, BICEP-2, and this uh, discussion uh, that I have in the book is how we thought we had glimpsed the earliest baby picture of the infant cosmos, but in reality we ended up glimpsing a signal much more prosaic and closer to home, though still astronomical, and that originates not in the formation of the first elements in the Big Bang, but rather the formation of the heavy elements and stars in our galaxy.
0: Right. Now, were you a member of the BICEP-2 team?
1: I was Yes, I was a founding member of it. I had created the BICEP-1 experiment, which was the predecessor that kicked off this whole field of study, so to speak.
0: What does BICEP stand for? Again, it's an acronym.
1: BICEP was an acronym that I made up, uh, and it stands for Background Imaging of Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization. And the reason it's sort of a play on words, and I was proud of myself back then (laughs) uh, for inventing it- It's hard to
0: get a good acronym. It It is, is,
1: it is. And, And since then, the leadership has chosen just to say it's a name, but but I'll always call it bicep uh, for that (laughs) acronym, and that's because we're looking for a type of signal that would represent a swirling, curling pattern of microwaves that would be indicative of uh, of these first formation of these gravitational waves in the early universe, and as the bicep is the muscle that does curls at the gym, so too would this bicep telescope reveal curls and do the heavy lifting of revealing what the cosmos looked like in the earliest trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after it came into existence.
0: And specifically though, it was designed to look for polarized signals if I remember right. correctly. Exactly and pol- right. a polarized light for those of, just real quick is a, uh, is a is a is when at least with electromagnetic waves, it is when the uh uh the direction of the electric field is in a in, in a uh one directional pattern instead of being sure. all over the place and and it is generally uh, detected because the the electric field is also polarized, so is the magnetic field at the magnetic component, and you can see this polarized light uh, an example is a reflection off of a pond. the light that comes off of a reflected surface is polarized, right. but this was gravitational energy, am I yes. right Yes, you were looking for polarized gravitational waves at a time. Which I should mention, this is like back in March of twenty, what was it, twenty fourteen or something like that? You guys had made tried to make the were making your initial findings announced. This was before we found gravitational waves at all. That's right. That yeah. didn't so come the, until, until LIGO saw them in twenty sixteen. So right. that sounds amazing. You were looking for a subset of a signal, a polarized mag- gravitational wave, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, the impact of the of the signal, if gravitational waves existed, would have been uh, sort of the implication would have been that a process called inflation took place. So we observe the universe expanding and galaxies moving away from each other at good fractions and sometimes greater than the speed of light uh, and that impulsion to expand we believe is related in some way or another to the original uh, expansion of the universe when it began its existence effectively, just as I said, a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the origin of the universe. And we observe this expansion, and yet we don't know how it started, what kicked it off, what impelled the universe to begin expanding versus collapsing. After all, most of the energy and matter in the universe is gravitationally attractive. So why would the universe be expanding if most of the matter and gravity only works in one direction It acts to contract and cause things to coalesce? So the, uh, the notion that the universe began expanding is, is quite surprising, given that we have matter in the universe. And it led Einstein to, among other things, insert this famous cosmological constant into his equations of, of relativity. Right. Uh, but getting back to why we wanted to see polarization. Uh, you're exactly right. When light bounces off a lake or a pond or an ocean, it becomes polarized. And I've got these two polarizing grids here. So here's one, I'll hold it up to the camera. And mm-hmm. you can barely see through me. Now, as I twist this other one, it will go through being parallel and then anti-parallel to the first one. And you'll actually see a pattern of repetition of light and dark patterns as these come into and out of alignment. So I can see you, I cannot see you, I can see you. And that polarization pattern is indicative of the way that light, is interacting with matter. To get polarization of light, you need an anisotropic, a a non-isotropic distribution of light, and you need some amount of electrons and matter in the universe to scatter that that light, which is anisotropic. You need it to scatter, and then that will produce polarization, even if the light source was unpolarized to begin with. So the sun, the sun's light is unpolarized, but when it bounces off the Pacific Ocean here in San Diego, it becomes slightly polarized because it's anisotropic. It's not coming from all directions. And that's
0: a fancy word, by the way, for just irregular, right? I mean, it's just not isotropic.
1: is irregular. It's yeah. coming in different amounts in different directions. It means right. not isotropic. Right. So isotropic would be if you're inside of a cloud, all the light is coming in equal directions. And even if you had a lot of electrons there, it would not scatter and produce polarization. Right. Now, what could have caused, we know what caused the amount of electrons that were present in the early universe. That was the Big Bang. The Big Bang, the creation of the elements, the creation of hydrogen from um, uh from quarks, for example, that fusion process, we know how many, quark, how many electrons there were compared to protons, very equally balanced. But what we didn't know is the exact composition of what would cause the light to not be isotropic. And that is theorized to have a component of which produced by these inflationary gravitational waves. So the logic is, you see a specific twisting pattern of polarization. From that, you infer that there were gravitational waves present when the CMB was produced, 380,000 years after the Big Bang. And from that, you surmise that the universe began in a period of inflation. And if you want to go even further back than that, that would then lead you to surmise that our universe is part of what's called a multiverse. We can talk about that later. The technical logic that is really the core of the book is if we saw these curling, twisting pattern of microwaves that we said we did... And we could attribute that to a true cosmic source, not just our galaxy, not just our sun or a lake or whatever. If it truly came from the cosmos, the early universe, then by force, that would lead us to believe inescapably that inflation, the spark that ignited the expansion of the universe that we believe took place 13.8 billion years ago, took place. And then there are all these other implications after that.
0: And I just wanted to find inflation real briefly because we haven't yet. This is this yeah. period early in the universe's history where it expanded at an exponential rate. Is that a relatively simple way to put it? Yes, it, it
1: expanded okay. exponentially and perhaps faster than the speed of light. Right, so the expansion can take place faster than the speed of light, even though no signals can be transmitted faster.
0: Than and it, we think inflation happened because it's inferred by what we see when the universe Throughout the history, when we look at the universe today and then and then look at distant galaxies in the early universe, we can see that this is uh, probably put in motion by a period of inflationary
1: expansion there's a tremendous amount of circumstantial evidence that inflation took place from the fine scale structure of these fluctuations in the microwave background that this doll represents, um, et cetera. These, these um, the, the fact that the universe's curvature is non-existent, meaning that if you shoot two initially parallel laser beams out into space, they'll never converge as they might if the universe had too much matter, too little matter, they would diverge, for example. So there, uh, and, and there's, there are many other pieces of circumstantial evidence but there are competing theories that could explain all those phenomena, except they would not produce these waves of gravity. So then gravity waves, these waves of gravity become a very crisp test that would rule out the other models that are competitors to inflation. And then using a version of Occam's razor, you might be left to believe to accept the fact that in combination with the circumstantial evidence that these waves of gravity are the smoking gun that proves beyond a reasonable doubt that inflation took place. And that's why the excitement took place where millions of people tuned in around the world. We made this announcement on St. Patrick's Day 2014.
0: Right. And so you were looking for a very specific polarization uh, signal that implied the existence or that inferred the existence of these gravitational waves. And therefore, as the theory goes back to inflate, that inflation did actually happen. That's right. And so you made your announcement, as you say, in, uh, on St. Patrick's Day. Everybody got excited, but yeah. then there along came uh, the Planck telescope, I believe. That's, that's right. And they yeah. also looked at the cosmic microwave background in very um, accurate detail. I don't know if it was as accurate as BICEP2 or not, but it certainly mapped the entire uh, CMB and found that perhaps your conclusion about what you had seen isn't what you actually thought you saw.
1: That's right. So as I said, the CMB is thought to originate from the formation of the elements, the elements hydrogen and helium primarily, and a little lithium and beryllium, etc. But it's not thought to be the source of all the other elements of which were comprised, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, etc. So it could only produce the first few elements on the periodic table uh, if indeed it is correct. And we have no reason to suspect it's not correct. In fact, we tested it extremely accurately. However, that being said, the CMB is not the only source of microwave energy that could be polarized and in fact have the exact same signal and signature, this curling, twisting pattern of microwaves called B-mode polarization for historical reasons. Uh, that, would be in, uh, that would be sort of the smoking gun that I just described uh, to, you know, that would all but shoe in, you know, make inflation a shoe in for the theory of cosmogenesis. How did the Big Bang get started and in that way, I think it's very important to point out that the best data that we had at the time indicated that the only other source of microwave energy, our galaxy, would that could plausibly produce a signal such as this, that there was no reason to suspect, based on what we knew at that time, that what we had seen was not what we claimed it to be, the this imprimatur of inflation. And even though immediately after our discovery was announced, people started to say that we had seen Imposter signals that weren't really real and that, you know, and we refuted those rather quickly, but there was a persistent concern that still we had not fully ruled out the contamination of what's called dust. And this isn't, you know, that much different from the dust that's, you know, probably covering your, your monitor or whatever uh, as you're listening to this. And it's really the, the remnants of previous stars that existed in the neighborhood of, the, of our solar system within the Milky Way galaxy. And when certain stars called type 2 supernovae blow up, they ex- eschew and expel into the intergalactic medium particles of the last material that they're able to fuse, which is, which is iron. So if you've ever hold a, a meteorite that's made of iron, here's one here. It has mostly iron, some cobalt, nickel. Uh, they, this is the last you know, product, so to speak, of a type 2 supernova before it blew up. And eventually that material coalesced and made our sun and our planets and the rocky inner core of the earth is made of iron. So thank goodness for that, uh, a star blowing up billions of years ago, about 5 billion years ago, for without it, we wouldn't be here talking. And in fact, some of the iron in the hemoglobin molecule in your blood originates from that very same supernova. So thank you, supernova. Yeah, However, really. <laughs> if you're a cosmologist, as you know, iron is highly magnetized. It can be magnetized very easily, it has a very uh, high magnetic permeability. And that means even in the Milky Way's feeble magnetic field, you know, many, many thousands of times weaker than, than a permanent magnet you can put on your refrigerator, uh, nevertheless, over billions of years, tiny grains of meteorites or much smaller versions of meteorites uh, called dust will tend to align themselves if they have an asymmetric shape. So this obviously, I've never seen a perfectly spherical meteorite in my whole life uh, that was naturally occurring. I have one at home that's a sphere. But uh, but anyway, uh, so that means all these things could get aligned by the same magnetic forces and fields that align uh, magnetic compasses on Earth, say. And those could produce a polarization signal that could mimic the signal that we saw. And that was the conclusion that we were led to believe after the 2015 joint working together of the Planck team with the bicep two team so we put down our, our you know swords and we made plowshares and the plowshares dug up a lot of dust and the dust was in the form that we could not escape because we're embedded within the milky way and so the only way to get rid of this signal is to build a new experiment that essentially only looks for dust and then you combine that result with say bicep two which saw dust plus the cosmic uh, gravitational waves if they do exist and then you subtract the dust only from the dust plus cosmic signal, and what you're left with should be primordial signals from the Big Bang. And we still have not uh, received enough evidence to say that we have detected gravitational waves in their purest form, which would again, indicate inflation took place. So, so we're, we're hotly working on this project. So now there's a current version of BICEP called BICEP3. There's a new version of fourth generation called BICEP Array. And then uh, I'm working on a new project called the Simons Observatory that are all building on these lessons learned that the dust signal that we ignored safely for decades in this field of research is now a very, very dominant force to be reckoned with.
0: Wow. So uh, that is, uh, let me just take a brief break here for a second. Okay. So I just want to take a break and say that my guest today is uh, Dr. Brian Keating. He is the author of Losing the Nobel Prize, a Story of Cosmology, Ambition, and the Perils of Science's Highest Honor. Uh, he's also the Chancellor of Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences at the University of California at San Diego. Okay, Brian, so that is, to me, the story you've just told is a story, okay, maybe, maybe you did not have you come out with the result that you inspected but that this is still a story of science isn't it this is a story of how science works you've designed an experiment you've made some observations and uh you've calibrated your data you've taught you you've uh, published your results and then others have duplicated or at least done similar observations and refuted those results and came out with something as you said that wasn't so contentious that you both agree that it's time to look a little bit closer at this and uh and, and carefully to make sure that what we're seeing is what we think we're seeing. This is, this is, a, this is how science works, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, people think of science, you know, as really neatly wrapped up, um, you know, that, that scientists dispassionately pursue truth and honest, you know, discoveries. And I, I'd like to think that we're, you know, very high uh, in terms of our ethical standards. And so we don't intentionally make mistakes. Um, you know, at least speaking for my colleagues and i I mean we didn't intend to do that. we did as best as we could in terms of asking our competitors for access to their data, which you know it turned out uh, they didn't have the data when we went to publish our well we didn't actually get it peer reviewed, but we released the data, and that you know we were rightfully criticized for in my opinion so Science relies on the replication and the reproducibility of findings. It's not enough that, you know, you Tony make a finding and and you're so brilliant that everyone just accepts what you did. Uh, Because a lot of times, you know, I always say, you know, Einstein is reputed to have many blunders that he's made, including, you know, calling one his cosmological constant a blunder. Which uh, which then eventually turned out not to be a blunder because it was discovered to actually be a real phenomenon, uh, namely dark energy, and the cosmological constant seems to be you know the best guess that we have for how this dark energy behaves. But anyway, <clears throat> the the discoveries that scientists make, and I always joke, you know, it's too bad because otherwise Einstein could have had a good career. But in the case of you know most normal scientists, we are frequently wrong. It's just that you're not wrong on such a public stage, and I think. Right. The reason that people were so excited about our results you know fed into our desire to get there want to get there first and you know in in retrospect we would not have released the claims that we made um uh, knowing what we know now and it's and it's a simple fact that when facts change you have to change your opinion and there's no such person or team or collection of people that are above the scientific method now that being said peer review is not a panacea Pe- peer review is not, you know, a guaranteed. It's a necessary condition, but it's not in no way sufficient. I think, you know, replication is important and we had a lot of reasons to not want to, you know, uh, to not want to do peer review before we did a release, but one of the it was not because we had anything to hide, it was more because we were worried about, you know, kind of the competition getting credit for discovery that we made. Now, we can talk deeper about why that way we were worried about that. Um, Which, you know, spoiler alert, I think has, you know, at least in my case, has something to do with the Nobel Prize.
0: Right. And I want to get to your book here in just a minute. But I just want to make a quick comment that that the scientific method, to the extent that it is, there is a method uh, at its at its core, at its heart, is a human endeavor. And because of that, there are it's full of biases and emotions and all kinds of other drivers besides just getting to an answer to your question. The stakes can be quite high in many of these uh, endeavors. And I think it was in the case of BICEP2 and certainly uh, many people had worked a long time on it. The interest was certainly there. Inflation as an idea, I'd love to have a whole hour just to talk about that, but we don't have time for that. It's just something that I I personally wonder about. Is it even a scientific theory just because of the fact that it applies to everything? Hey everybody, we're gonna take a short break. I'm Tony Darnell and you are listening to the Deep Astronomy Show. I was today we are talking with Dr. Brian Keating. Thank you so much for listening. This turn now to your book and this this story that you've just told about your experience with with the observations and the uh, and the and the synthesis synthesis of the bicep two observations into a paper. Uh, did it lead you into writing this book? Was it or or tell us a little bit about why you wrote your book? Losing yeah, Nobel Prize.
1: Yeah, I never thought I'd write a book. Um, as a kid, i I was a voracious reader. I still am. I love reading science books. You know the great science and science fiction authors. Uh, that really inspired me, and, and yet I didn't think I had it within me to write one, especially after writing a 200-page PhD thesis and supervising 10 PhD students. Uh, it's a lot of re- reading more than writing, and and yet I realized that I had been a witness to something historical and in many fronts. One, this announcement. Two, coming very close to winning a Nobel Prize and not winning it. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, And then uh, three, being asked to nominate the winners of the prize that I arguably was in the running for for several months uh, in 2016. And then uh, also wanting to tell the story of, of the origin of the universe from an experimentalist, from an observational astronomer's point of view. We have many of my brilliant colleagues. Uh, Lord Martin Rees and Roger Penrose and and Brian Greene. All these people are j- kind and generous, and, and they endorse my book and put blurbs on the back of it. It's just so flattering to me. I've read all their books, and now they're writing something on my book. Uh, but they're all theorists, um, and there's nothing wrong with being a theorist, and my best friends are theorists. But one of my friends, Alex Filippenko, is an observer at UC Berkeley. He was the only person on both supernova teams that discovered the dark energy expansion, of the un- accelerating expansion of the universe he said that yeah he said famous quote of his is that you know a theorist only has to be right once in her life to have her career made for forever and an experimentalist or observer only has to be wrong once to end his or her career now i'm hoping my career is not over I've, I've gone on to to you know continue working and and, um, and and leading you know large large teams but the but the point being that uh, an experimentalist insight is one necessarily that has to grapple with real real world effects so, um, you know, Max Tegmark, a friend of mine, he can write a book about four different kinds of multiverses that none of which could ever be even possibly encountered perhaps. And, uh, and you know, he can speculate on, on, on those things, but they can't be falsified, they can't be disproven. The whole job of an experimentalist is not to prove stuff. Remember I said, our job is to rule out these other competitors to inflation. The same way that, you know, somebody, I think Isaac Asimov, one of my heroes once said, you know, if you think the earth is flat, you're wrong. And if you think it's a perfect sphere, you're wrong, but if you think saying it's a sphere and a flat are both equally wrong, then you're wrong. In other words, <laughs> it's about refining and getting things down you know, further and further to closer to the truth and paring away the, the ignorance. And I hope that we're continuing to do that, but you're right, scientists are human beings, but sometimes we don't perpetuate this, this myth that we, you know, we perpetuate a myth that we're superhuman deities and I think the Nobel Prize has a huge, huge role in that. Uh, one of my heroes, another hero, Richard Feynman, he said something which, you know, on one hand is is incredibly, you know, offensive, but on the other hand is, is probably true. He said, you know, a reporter asked him, what'd you get the Nobel Prize for? And he said, if I could explain it to you, it wouldn't be worth the Nobel Prize. Now, it's probably true he can't explain quantum electrodynamics to a layperson, yeah, but it's a little bit condescending. <laughs> yeah, it's very condescending. <laughs> you know, it's totally within his character. Um, but, you know, he uh, he's, he's in, in in big company. And I always say that does science a disservice because imagine a kid, you know, imagine Richard Feynman at age 12 listens to that and he hears, oh, you can't understand this thing that this brilliant person, maybe he wouldn't have gotten into science because he would say, well, I never make mistakes so, uh, or I make mistakes, but scientists don't. So I shouldn't get into this field. And I think that does a disservice to the field of science by scientists.
0: Another interesting point that you just brought up, and I want to dive into it a little bit more is... This idea of a, a theorist can come up with an idea that mathematically is beautiful, makes a lot of sense. You use the multi world, uh, multiverse idea. Uh, but an experimental observationalist, his job or her job is to try and provide evidence that among all of the theories that are out there, which ones are clearly not going to work according to what we see in the world around us. And of course, the process is never ending. Things come and go. You can, you, you know, uh, observations can sometimes uh, bring other ideas back to the forefront. Yeah. But you have, it seems to me like the tone of your book is one of, there needs to be some changes in how science is done. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what are your thoughts on the Nobel Prize itself and how does it hinder, you think, uh, the, the, the progress of science?
1: Yeah. Uh, That's a very good question. So in my opinion, what the Nobel Prize does is it turns uh, science into a sport almost. So this week is Nobel Prize season. That's right. I, I joke in the book that the Nobel Prize has all the characteristics of a religion. It has a founding father, you know, sort of a deity, Alfred Nobel. It has this mythology surrounding his death and his brother's death that I get into in the book. It's given out on the day of his death. In other words, it's announced during this week in October, but it's awarded on December 10th every year, which is the anniversary of his death. Um, And there are a lot of, you know, kind of eschatological aspects of the Nobel Prize. It it has this kind of priesthood, uh, Vatican City almost, where it's the Stockholm City. uh, All these scientists, mostly male scientists in Stockholm and Sweden generally in the Nordic countries that are the high priesthood. It has its holy days, you know, the Annunciation Week that we're in now, and then it has the uh, Coronation Week in December. And then you literally bow down and receive a golden icon, a golden idol that pictures an engraven image of Alfred Nobel on it. Uh, while you're uh, dressed in this mandatory attire that they that they force you to wear So it has all these aspects of religion and, and I don't know about you But you know, I'm very comfortable with my religious choices as I've made them and you know If somebody comes to my door Jehovah's Witness and asks me to you know consider another God or you know, whatever um, I'm very reluctant to give that up, and I think scientists do that as well They don't want to give up the Nobel Prize many of them are, are denigrated or comment on it because it's sort of a goal for them and and many of them are are secular in fact and and this is you know some will say oh it's just good fun but you know this whole week is just saturated by the nobel committee tweeting about stuff putting out stuff looking for likes and ignoring the apostates you know every religion has apostates and i'm kind (laughs) of a an apostate in the religion of nobelism as i describe in the book and so i would not go
0: that that far i mean but i wouldn't say you're an apostate i would too
1: well, I certainly want to not you know like Martin Luther you know I'm not comparing myself in any way to him but he wanted Reformation right and he did he didn't say tear down the church he said the church needs to be reformed and maybe a new one made up and I believe that the Nobel Prize it's incumbent upon the Nobel Prize lest it go the way of, of prizes that have come and gone over the centuries and due to things that it leaves out large swaths of the scientific community notably women minorities groups bigger than three people for for you know for example and so I think its days are numbered. If it doesn't, if they don't take heed to the suggestions that I, and I'm not alone, I mean every single person, including members of the Nobel Academy, have written to me, have said to me that they agree with everything that I say in the book, but they're not gonna change. And that's just, they're ossified in this role because it brings a lot of prestige to them specifically. And there's no other prize that comes even remotely close in terms of prestige.
0: And as and I have seen firsthand, I I worked with uh, Adam Reese at the Space Telescope Science Institute, right. and he, uh, it you, the the change after he won was he won the Nobel Prize for the Type One A Supernovae work he did with uh Saul per- Perl- Perl- Perlmutter Mutter yeah, uh, with the Type One A Supernovae, and oh my God, the 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 celebrity status was yeah. you know it exploded. It was like suddenly he I had lunch exploded. with him.
1: Three months ago, and at the Space Telescope Science Institute, and you know, there's this Nobel Prize replica of it in the cafeteria.
0: Yeah, yeah, and the uh, SDSCI really built that up, and because we're obviously quite proud of it, and and institutions are are they want to attract the best minds and stuff, so they they would definitely tout this kind of thing. I also went to the University of Colorado when uh, uh, was it was it forget his first name, Um, but last name was Weiner. Is that right? uh, Uh, The uh, Bosein Bosein Silicon Wyman. Wyman. Thank you. Um, He won. And the same thing. He was suddenly a rock star. uh, I went there
1: a month after a month before I went to space telescope and I saw a building there. And they said, this is our new building. It's, it was built by Wyman's Nobel Prize.
0: All of, Yeah, exactly. And all of this is to say that there is a huge um, industry behind this. And I think that's what the point of your book is. That's
1: that It's 13 chapters. Only three are about the Nobel Prize. The rest are about cosmology, a memoir, et cetera. But yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right.
0: Well, this is, this, is and this was one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you because I agree with you. I think that this is a – that science – as an institution, is facing a bit of an inflection point. We're seeing, and we live in a time where uh, the scientific discoveries and the general public attitude about science has is, is faced a level of distrust that I have never seen in my lifetime. I'm not that old, but I, I mean, I, and, and I, I can tell you that there is a level of distrust in science that I find disconcerting, and I think part of it, not all of it, but part of it is this priesthood, I am so amazing and I know so much and you don't know anything attitude uh, yeah. in among these, they're not all jerks no, uh, by any know, means, but, but it, it, but it, it, prog- it projects this, exactly. this level of otherness that isn't, if anything, it's certainly not inclusive. That's and right. So And so, I don't know, you know what are your thoughts of, on
1: one one of that? The, yeah. So I, you know, obviously I agree with you and I, you know, just to make it a little bit more interesting. So we're not, you know, mutually admiration society, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll say this. So I don't have any problem with anyone who's won the Nobel prize. For example, when I got this letter, which I have in my office somewhere. Uh, Asking me to nominate the winners of the Nobel Prize after it said keep strictly confidential, so nobody out there in deep astronomy land, no, don't mention this. (laughs) (laughs) I printed in the book, but anyway, uh, but but the point is, uh, they say you can't nominate yourself. Okay, so these people that win it, they didn't nominate themselves. They didn't get asked to win it, and and nobody who's won it, you know, beyond has, has really gone through, you know, this whole process of getting prepared for it. Cause I don't think you can prepare. Two weeks ago, I had dinner with Barry Barish, who is the winner of the 2017 the co-winner of the Nobel prize for LIGO. Um, you know, he said, we were so close to failing all the time. I never even thought about the Nobel prize. He read my book. He loves my book. He said, but you know, he disagrees that it should be such a great focus. And I said, Barry, you have a little bit of what's called survivorship bias. Like you've been through it. <laughs> That's won right. it you know, and so but when you go to these buildings like at NIST in Colorado, which I just mentioned, our space telescope, or you go to my physics department, which is named, you know, Gephardt Mayer Hall, which is named after Maria Gephardt Mayer, the last woman before last year to win the Nobel Prize in Physics. Or you go to the corner of Nobel Street and Le bon Street, which is Nobel back, here in San Diego, it's written into the street of a major city of America. Why is this? This is a prize given out by 400, mostly male, mostly, you know, white males in, in, in Scandinavia. Why does it take on such importance? I think it's because of a carefully cultivated monopoly that this prize has. I mean, for example, the uh, the breakthrough prize is three times as valuable if you win it. You know, it's 10 times as valuable if you share the Nobel Prize versus if you win the breakthrough prize by yourself. It's $3 million versus $300,000. And that's uh, the
0: one that was done, that was created by the, was it the Russian guy?
1: Yeah, Yuri Milner. Yeah. Thank yeah.
0: you, Yuri Milner. I forgot his name. So,
1: you know, when we when we look at these prizes, it's clearly not, it's clearly not monetary. So, it has to be something else, right? And that's why I make this case, you know, slightly tongue in cheek, but I do think it's real. When I teach classes, I often teach experiments that led to Nobel Prizes. When you look at the Department of Energy's website, you know, they touted they had a Nobel Prize as their secretary. When you go through uh, the National Science Foundation, they point to how many Nobel Prizes their research has given out. Even my foundation, the foundation that supports most of my research now, the Simons Foundation, they took credit, rightfully so, for funding it. Now, I make the analogy in the book it's not the fault of the winners it's in some sense the fault of say the funding agencies, the Swedish Royal Academy, et cetera, because they perpetuate it just as a Hollywood studio. It was funny, I was on uh, Scott Eastwood, who's Clint Eastwood's son. He has a lovely podcast called Live Life Better and he came down and interviewed me. And I was saying to him, look Scott, you're in the entertainment world. You know, he tried out for you know, parts and all these movies and you know it better than anybody, Hollywood doesn't expect every you know, crummy movie that's out there like, let's just take a movie like The Fast and the Furious. Nobody thinks that you know, kind of a caliber movie is gonna win an Academy Award, but he's like, excuse me, I was in The Fast and the Furious. <laughs> uh uh oh, um, uh, sorry, uh-oh. it was a triumph of cinematography. But I, you know, he said, I agree with you, like it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't meant to win an Academy Award, but it was meant to make the money. That then goes to the Moonlights and, the, and the, um, you know, the other movies that do win Academy Awards. They're seen by the square root of the number of people that see his movies. Right. So it's the studios. What's the analog of the movie studios in science? It's the funding agencies. It's the universities like San Diego. It's, it's, the, it's the publicity officers that, and the newspaper journalists. You know We had this front page announcement, headline above the fold in the New York Times, bicep discovery, evidence for the smoking gun of the Big Bang. There was never a front page, I don't even know if there was an article period in the printed edition when we retracted our conclusion. And that tells you something. People want to see these headlines. They want the likes, the favorites, you know, whatever, the retweets. Um, And it sets up this game competition that's very antithetical for the first time in history where science is kind of vetted first in the public and then by peer review and then by replication or not.
0: Well, this is... Oh boy, I really have a lot of other questions I want to ask you, and let me just on that. But but I'll just stick to this topic real quick and say, what do you think? In that same vein, where it's all about the likes and it's all about we got to get the exposure quickly because science is a very competitive endeavor. We need it needs money to survive. It needs money to get things done. What do you think about the? the way in which archive.org is run now with specifically astro ph this is for those of you who don't know this is a preprint archive when a when a a new paper is about to be written uh many many times uh the paper once it's been accepted into a journal will we get pr- the preprint will get posted there so you can read it um i have discovered and maybe you can dispute this or, or agree with me but i have discovered on astro especially that there's a lot of papers there that are posted way before they're even accepted into a journal and not quite even peer reviewed. And have you noticed that as well?
1: Oh yeah, we did it with BICEP2's results. We posted oh. it on the archive, we posted on our website. Yeah.
0: And why did you do that?
1: Well, in our case, we wanted to do that because we didn't want to submit to peer review, because we didn't want to keep it embargoed. So many journals nowadays will force you, in the biggest journals, not to release your results on archive before they're accepted for publication in nature. Uh, So you'll actually be forbidden to do that. And so then we would say we would submit it to Nature, for example. Then Nature would, you know, there'd be a couple of peer reviewers. By the way, when there's peer review, you're talking about maybe a professor, sometimes it's a postdoc. For this type of paper, it probably would have been a, a professor, but maybe it wouldn't be an experimentalist. We ran it by a couple of theorists, but we didn't run it by our competition because, you know, in some abstract world, we were worried about being scooped and people publishing. And there were actually like hundreds of papers. I remember like the night before, the leak was made by several dozen people, probably, and there were all these papers published if the results from, you know, a gravitational wave-looking polarimeter uh, would reveal this level of signal, then our model of how the universe formed would be right, and they they were kind of angling for the theoretical component of the Nobel Prize in some cases, um, and then still others were, were refuting it before it even came out, so I think there's this, there's this outdated notion that, that that you know, kind of peer review solves everything. And there have been numerous cases where things have been published and then retracted um, after long after the peer review process took place. So it's not a panacea.
0: No. And in fact, I'll just add to that by telling you one little anecdote I had when I was still working in solar physics. I won't say any names, but there was a guy doing a peer review of another journal article to a competitor or someone he he didn't think highly of and said that he had a lot of problems with the science, but was going to go ahead and recommend it for publication uh, because it, um, you know, he wanted to see this guy fall on his face. So there's, there's a lot of that kind of thing, which of course hurts science course. As, a, as an endeavor. But as I said, it's a human endeavor, and there are all kinds of things pushing and pulling on our motives for what we do in science. We hope that most of them are genuine and pure and want and, and honest. But there are plenty of times when that's not the case. And, yeah, and I
1: mean, people, scientists have, you know, needs just as anybody else does. There's tenure, there's, you know, right. There's, 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 you know, within your university, there's a press office that's breathing down your neck. We got to get this result out, you know, and then it's embargoed. And so all these things conspire at the worst possible time when you have the least amount of time.
0: Well, I, and, and I, so my, my, my and I think all of this uh, does a lot of harm. That's this idea. I've got to get it out there first. I've got to get my likes and I've got to get the social media attention because in this day of social media, what, what's happened is that science journalists have caught on to the Astro PH thing. And now they scan, the, they get the daily emails yeah. uh, from Cornell and they look at all of the, the, right. the pub papers that have been published and they click on the ones that have the titles that they understand halfway. Right. And, then, and they, then, they, then, they, then they start doing it. Then you'll see it. In, you know, uh, I'm I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but you might see it on Forbes, or you'll even right. see it on like New Scientist or something like exactly. that.
1: No, exactly like, right. So I call it, you know, part of t hacking. I, I call it T hacking, you know, because <laughs> yeah. you're hacking the title. And so what? Then what do they do? So they they want to be good journalists, right? So they'll say, if confirmed. The multiverse is true, you know, and it's like the the general audience reader is not going to. Hmm. Let me wait six months until Planck comes through, and then no, it's the multiverse is true. They're winning Nobel prizes, and I've had people still think, oh, didn't you guys win the Nobel Prize for that? <laughs> you guys and, win. You no, know, because they if if the retraction is printed, it's on page B seventeen on the Saturday edition that nobody reads.
0: Yep. So, what do you think about um, the process as it stands now? Is there something better? Is there anything else we can do?
1: Well, in terms of the Nobel Prize or in terms of science?
0: I Nobel guess I'm, I'm thinking more broadly now into the way science is presented, the way si- the currency of science is papers and the way discoveries are being right. announced and communicated. Is there a better way?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that there is, you know, if scientists can be, uh, for example, and, you know, we don't have too much time, but I will say this. All my friends that have gone to business school, law school, medical school, they take classes in ethics, we never take a class. I never took, a, I don't know about you, but I never took a class in ethics of science. And it's not for lack of examples. It's not for, I mean, these things go back to like Galileo, not wanting Kepler to have a copy of his telescope to replicate his results because he was afraid there was still more stuff that he could discover first in the low hanging tree of deepest astronomical knowledge. didn't yeah, you knew you know, a- Kepler, He knew Kepler was a genius and would figure stuff out. That's so, right. Uh,
0: Galileo was really bad about that. He he, he took was, yeah. he took credit for other people's work too. The credit for
1: other people's work. He didn't admit. He <laughs> he disobeyed his funding agency.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I know.
1: That's a cardinal sin. You know, Plagiarized, fine, but no, I'm just kidding. Well, Brian, uh, so, I, yeah. I I
0: I know I only have a few more minutes, and I yeah. I'm desperate to ask talk to you about this one more uh, sure. topic, and that is as a cosmologist, and you've already mentioned Alex Felipenko, um, One of my heroes is Sean Carroll, who I think also works at Caltech. Yeah. And um, he has lately been talking about this multi-worlds theory, this, this yeah. multiverse idea, this idea that in quantum mechanics, the wave function collapses the minute you do an observe, observation of something and you're forced into whatever that wave function was whenever you observed it. But he is uh, going on the work of, uh, of a physicist named Everett, I believe, yep. who said, "Don't collapse the wave function; just let the universe be." And what the implication, and what are the implications of that? And he, and of course, the implications are that every time you make a decision, whether you decide to go left or right on a given intersection, whatever it is, the universe branches off, uh, and now there's a completely different universe where you went left and right, and uh, there's a, basically there's infinite numbers of everything that ever happened. I have a problem with this on so many levels but I don't want, while I don't want to talk about that what I want to talk about is this idea of the demarcation problem which is this idea that Karl Popper came up with about whether something is either science pseudoscience or just plain bullshit yeah. and in this case when you have something like that's beautifully explained by quantum mechanics and mathematics that this could actually be true but has zero hope of ever meeting an experiment that will confirm or deny it. My question to you is, is that science? Is it yeah. is it science? If you I could- spent a
1: good a good half a chapter talking about this in the book in the context of the multiverse, which is I should I should make you feel even more, you know, angry because there's it turns out that there's almost as many different kinds of multiverse and, and different kind of, um, you know, uh, second order scientific hypothesis as there are, you know, real planets in our solar system or, or maybe even more. And, and that's to say that there's, you know, kind of the, the general speaking multiverse where it's, there's there regions outside of our observable universe that we know exist or we believe exist the same way I believe when I'm out near Catalina Island that, that you know, Japan exists. Um you know, but, but I don't know for sure because I can't see it. It's beyond my light horizon, right, and my physical horizon. So in this case, that's the most basic type of multiverse. And then it goes all the way up to like string theory, um, the, the background number of vacua that you could have, inflationary multiverse. We could have, honest to goodness, Big Bangs going off right now, uh, currently in some abstract space. Then there's a multiverse in, in time where you have a cyclic universe that comes into and out of existence. And then lastly, or, you know, perhaps in somewhere in the middle of an infinite number of multiverses, is this Everettian co- uh, quantum mechanical description of the multiverse where there are parallel universes going on in this abstract uh, Hilbert space or quantum mechanical space. Um, I have I have Sean's book. He did endorse my book, so I can't say anything. Like, no, I'm just kidding. I can say whatever I like. He's oh, a great, no, I love he's,
0: him. He's, a, he's yeah. like a rock star to me. I'm not going to uh, say uh, anything bad about uh, him either. The, I'm just frustrated by this. Yeah, idea itself. I'm not saying it is very
1: frustrating. So you know, in the book, I think early up, I, I I have the audio book, and I believe you know he's talking about in the very beginning that you and I, you know, everyone should go out and buy his book and two copies of my book. But <laughs> his, uh, you know, these these decision, these inflection points are taking place in his case at the ten to the minus twenty second of a second level. In other words, we're branching the universe wave function far faster than any picosecond, femtosecond, any sort of time scale, almost. You know, like not too far away from, from like Planck times or, or, you know, the ultimate perhaps division of space-time into time increments, quanta. And for that reason, it may forever be untestable. Now, you know, he hasn't done like new research that's discovered that it's a matter of what's called the interpretations of the foundations of quantum mechanics, the measurement problem. There is a lot of work going on with that. I don't know if it's possible to construct an experiment that determines whether or not an interpretation of quantum mechanics like his is the correct one. My guess is like, you know, with many things, there could be multiple correct ways to approach it that may be non-overlapping. In other words, you may have, there might be aspects of, you know, free will and choice that depend or could be tantamount to an Everettian interpretation where the wave function is splitting and these universes exist. I, you know, that may not be as plausible as a, you know, Copenhagen interpretation, which basically everybody uses, but nobody likes. And so, um, and so this, this notion of the multiverse, I believe, you know, just on a personal level, uh, Karl Popper was correct about a lot of things. I don't know, I mean, his notion of what constitutes science is not as strong as say what Gödel proposed in mathematics. where he had the incompleteness theorem and he showed that you can't construct a formally complete mathematical system. What we need in science is an analog of that. And Popper's definition is a nice working example, but I always point out Popper's two main bugaboos back in the 1930s were Marxism and uh, astrology. And if you look in any newspaper today, you'll find an astrology column. And if you look around the country at Marxist dictatorships, you'll find there's probably more of them than capitalist democracies so he's been falsified in that context, as I like the joke as
0: well. no, no, yeah, his falsification uh ideas are are not complete they're not enough and and i and I don't endorse that. I was just he also just introduced the idea of the demarcation problem, like Correct. what yeah. when is science, science, and when is it not science and, and the thing valuable. is if you tell me that we live in a universe where everything happened uh and we have no hope of ever um, knowing this for sure one way or another that's useless information to me that is just you know this is not this isn't really science you can say well we live in a simulation but we're never going to be able to figure it out i mean that's like well okay then why tell me this
1: no that's not
0: science that is meta science that is something else i don't say pseudoscience but it's not and in many cases it's just irrelevant i don't see i don't see what good that does anything and science to me by definition is something that advances our understanding of the cosmos in a way that is uh testable that that is yes that thank you that is testable that is something that we can build on to you know make you know understand things like gps's which is you know directly out of yeah. Uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. So to me, that's science. And yeah. and so this idea of multi-worlds and, and multiverses and even string theory, if things are happening smaller than the Planck length, which are laws of physics, as we can never measure anything shorter than that, then I don't I don't see – I just don't see why we're even talking yeah. about Why are we wasting uh, so much I breath I agree with
1: you. I, I do want our theoretical counter – that's why it's so important to have experimentalists on, by the way, yes. Tony, yes. for doing that
0: because we You can- and me, man, yeah. observationalists. I built did- – exactly. I built cameras uh, to, be- yeah. to measure polarization of the solar corona, so I'm with <laughs> you, man. let Awesome. Let's let's do observations, and let's back up. Let's throw away – we don't need any more theories. What we need is <laughs> observations to tell us exactly. which ones are bullshit.
1: And we'll be doing much more of them, so look forward to that.
0: Okay, I know you got to go, Brian, but listen, man, I, it, what are the chances of us talking some more? This was, this was I fun. Talk.
1: Let's talk uh, – how about this? We'll, we'll set a date for the um, – the Nobel uh, coronation date, which is December 10th, we can talk about I love to. it.
0: I will definitely plan on that. And let's do something live this time.
1: Let's do um, live. Let's do a multiverse. And,
0: and let's talk, uh, let's about talk
1: a little bit more about a good old Alfred Nobel, who I think is rolling around in his grave, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Brian Keating, he's the author of Losing the Nobel Prize, a Story of Cosmology, Ambition, and the Perils of Science science's highest honor i'll put a link to all of this and all of the things that i post so please go check it out please buy the book it is outstanding and we will be talking more about this in future hangouts so uh dr keating thank you so much for taking time thank
1: out. you tony thank you to all, all right. your listeners out there too okay Bye-bye.
0: take it easy